Hello, everyone. Quick little PSA. I will be in Chattanooga, Tennessee, December 15th and 16th for the Indoor Climbing Expo. Use the code MARIO20 at IndoorClimbingExpo.com to get your tickets. Come up and say hello and give a brother a high five. Some of the proceeds go back to the Global Climbing Initiative to get us back to Malawi, Africa to do more mentorship. And that is what this episode is all about. Hope you enjoy. Lovers and haters, welcome to Sends and Suffers podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley. If you haven't already, please follow, like, and subscribe to Sends and Suffers podcast. Every bit counts and we would love to hear from you. So take a moment to leave a comment. These go a long way and help others know what they're getting into and how good this show is. If this is one of your favorite podcasts, consider becoming a Patreon for as little as $5 a month. You are investing in Sense and Suffers podcast, and it's like buying your boy a taco, hanging out, and getting to know the good good that is coming your way. Monthly recaps, early show releases, and all the other cool things that we do. Thank you so much for listening to Sense and Suffers podcast. Organic Climbing is the official sponsor of Sense and Suffers podcast, and if you didn't know, now you know. I have been using this company's products since before my podcast, since I basically started rock climbing, they're cool, they're rad, they're customizable. You can get bouldering pads, chalk buckets, backpacks. They've got shoes. They've got almost anything you can conceive to make you look fly, to make you functional at the crag. Check out Organic Climbing. Put in Sends and Suffers at your purchase. It helps this podcast out. And really support someone who has been supporting the conception of climbing communities since the beginning. Josh and everyone at Organic is all about making sure communities grow. And that is a huge thing coming from a small company that moves massive, massive mountains. So check out Organic Climbing, tell them I sent you. Let's get into this episode. Today's episode is with Marcus Garcia, a Texas local legend and an honestly all around great mentor in the climbing community. This man has so much love for climbing communities and wants to see people within these communities be their very best version of themselves. This conversation is kind of moving for me because we're both in the same industry. We wanna see you and all the people that we mentor and we coach do well. Enjoy this episode where we talk about mentorship, we talk about our responsibilities and our own personal growth. Sweet. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. It's so good to see you. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, I feel like we have crossed paths and run into each other for the better part of like, I want to say like five, six years now. Oh yeah. Maybe longer now. Yeah. 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 It's been a while. So yeah. So I'm not going to uh, pretend that everyone knows who you are. So uh, I'll let you introduce yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? 
And what is your connection to CWA here and the outdoors? Yeah, my name is uh, Marcus Garcia. I'm a longtime climber of over 30 something years, starting getting my roots in Texas. Now I reside in Durango, Colorado um, as a pro climber. And mm -hmm. my coming here to CWA was to do a talk about mentorship and the gap of the mentorship gap in the climbing industry and why we need to rediscover it and why it's so important in our climbing industry to protect our natural resources of outdoor climbing as, ver as, versus, as well as the indoor climbing industry. Okay, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. And you said you started your uh, career in climbing in Texas. Can we talk about that? Like how, when, yeah. where, and why? Yeah, my I started my climbing ooh, life in 1992, kind of after the climbing gym era, which was 1987. So very early on when gym mm -hmm. industry was just kind of getting started, the commercial gym industry. Yeah. Right. And I went out climbing with a really good friend who was my mentor um, because he had a, a truck <laughs> and he had the gear um, to get us out to the crag, a little crag called uh, Mineral Wells in Weatherford, Texas. And that's kind of where I got my roots in climbing. And this kind of took off from there. So, mineral Wells is a weird phenomenon. I feel like that place has started a lot of people's climbing. And then also, I feel like not a lot of people return back to Mineral Wells at all. For I any. think that would be 100% true. <laughs> yes. I don't think I've been back in probably 25 years. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And, uh, and since then, I, you know, um, I've, I think, you know, you've climbed in the Wichita's, you've climbed mm -hmm. in Corks, you've that. Have you, and then you've also been doing route development as well, mm -hmm. too? Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? Is there any of your routes that are existing in Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas in any of that area? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, I know I definitely have developed some routes in the Wichita Mountains, which is in, a lot in Oklahoma. And um, recently, actually within the last, I think, four years, mm -hmm. one of my routes just got repeated, which is quite in interesting, a route called Rage. It was... You know, at the time it was kind of cutting edge because there was a bolting band. So I just learned how to climb things super exposed and <laughs> extreme. Yeah. And that's what I learned to climb. And I, I just adapted my style. It's not that I, if I would had ability to put bolts in, I probably would have, but I didn't. And this is what I adapted to, which, what presented itself. So um, it recently just got repeated. And actually two of my routes I just heard got repeated. One got repeated last year, a route called Merlin. Okay. which is a, um, an off width, um, roof crack in the Wichita mountains. And I think it's only had one repeat. And right now people are projecting it. It's like, it's kind of been rediscovered uh -huh. and given a new birth. And it's been quite interesting because they have been, this person who's projecting right now has been reaching out to me as a sense of mentorship to help him understand. And he's been sending me videos and I've been analyzing his movement and sending it back to him. Like, well, probably you need to work on this kind of movement to get through this section. So okay. it's been kind of cool. Like it's been re um, revisiting me. And okay. it was a place that I climbed quite a bit with my climbing mentor, Jimmy Forrester, who had passed away. And that's a place that the Wichita's, I just went back there this last year for their um, climbing festival, a little get together. And I haven't been back there in probably 20 years. And it was kind of cool to go revisit. And I actually went to Crab Eyes area and went and climbed one of my old routes. I was like, whoa, I put this up. <laughs> I was like, I forgot about this one. Like, it's a little harder than I remember. Oh, <laughs> so, awesome. so it was really cool to go back to a place that kind of gave me birth to climbing. Nice. I didn't, yeah. real, I didn't realize, uh, 
Jimmy Forrester is a connection between you and I. Now, granted, I never had yeah. the chance to meet Jimmy. Yeah. I think he passed away. I think he passed away literally one year before I got into the community. Oh, Cause wow. I remember Kinsey Davis and Jared Staines and all of them talking about him and, um, uh, Forrest Jackson, um, mm-hmm. if you know him as I well. I remember meeting him. But. Yeah, but like all of them were talking about him very mm-hmm. much so. And then I was working on a route that Jimmy had put up at Paradise on the Brazos mm-hmm. called Summer Lave. And I was like trying to repeat it. And I actually haven't finished repeating it yet because the water level keeps on getting so high that like, yeah. you have to either belay out of a boat or wait for the water level to get so low. Yeah. And last time I was climbing it, giant chunk of rock just ripped off and it was so large it like smashed my friend's lunchbox and I remember we were gonna put a bolt in there and I had like put a tick mark on it and I was like we probably need to add a bolt here not because it's like it was one of those moments where like, is it entirely necessary? Yeah. No, but would it make the fall like less decapitating because it's such a roof? And yeah. we were like, yeah, we'll yeah. do it. And then that whole block just came oh, out like yeah. the next season. So I was like, well, that's why there was never a bolt there to begin with. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. I've, I've chased his routes for a very, right. very, very, yeah. very long time. And that's the thing. He's still mentoring from a distance. Yeah. 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 I would say very much so. <laughs> yeah. So you, so, you know, you started your career in Texas through climbing, bolting, establishing, and then where did you jump off from after that? Like where yeah, was the next so place? Kind of after Texas, I kind of made my way to Durango, Colorado. And I went there to work for a guide service in the late nineties and started guiding kind of full time there. Um, working there mostly in the winter, in the summers. And then the winters were spent down in Mexico or Puerto Chico, mm-hmm. where I was actively in, uh, in, involved putting up routes and route development and guiding down there. And then would make my way to um, Yosemite, get my, you know, really love big wall climbing, big wall mm-hmm. free climbing. It's like my, my thing, still kind of my thing, although I'm not as good as I used to be, but that's okay. Um, um, and then kind of just kind of made my roots in Durango, Colorado. And then I started... Um, a family there, um, and then built a climbing gym, owned a climbing gym for a couple of years and lost it during COVID. And now kind of in a process of like re-identifying myself and rebranding me and what I do. And that has been coming about mentoring and kind of giving back to a community that gave so much back to me. That's awesome. So, is yeah. there a new climbing gym opening up in Durango? There I is now a new gym. That. Yeah, there is a gym called the Gravity Lab. Okay. In Durango, Colorado now that's currently open. This opened in January. Nice, nice. So, and okay. I'm there doing private coaching and pretty much just private coaching is kind of what I'm doing. I'm trying to just take a back seat and just do what I do best. And that's coaching and helping others achieve their goals. Nice. And when did you, so, you know, I think if you've been mentored, you end up doing mentorship mm-hmm. and it's kind of this thing, but when did it, was it a pivotal shift for you to actually like, Mm-hmm. maybe let me ask the question this way. When did you notice that there was a lack of mentorship in the climbing community? And I'm sure that alone eventually pivoted, like shifted you into the, where you kind of has led you to where we are now today. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. Um, and interesting. I was just, I'm writing a paper right now, a blog paper. And I kind of, when I was writing it, that quantum question came up and what it is, is like, I own knowingly, started mentoring. I didn't realize I was mentoring. And when I started realizing it was like, right when I took over a coaching position and Durango was a, oh, a, another climbing gym called the rock lounge mm-hmm. before I bought it. And I came there and work and helped them develop a youth program. 
Mm-hmm. And once I started working with the youth program, I didn't realize how important mentorship was and there was no real guidance there. Mm-hmm. But it really, really, what really was the catalyst for it was when I lost my mentor, Jimmy Forster. And that was like when I realized there is no more mentorship for me, mm-hmm. right? So how, how can I be there for who I'm working with the kids? Just like Jimmy was for me. So mm-hmm. I think that's when I realized there's a lack of mentorship in our, our own community for the youth. So I started working a lot with the youth programs. And then 2015, I developed the USA Youth Ice Climbing Team because there was no ice team in the U.S. Oh, wow. So I developed that. And, and now a lot of those kids are still, we're still well bonded and still doing communicating. We're doing projects together. Um, and it's been pretty amazing to see like what I was doing was mentoring and just now kind of realizing what I was doing years later, unknowingly. It's kind of interesting. But now when I look back at it, it is when I realize how important it was to help guide these youth members to find their own identity. And do you, do you mainly do this within the youth scope or do you focus this in the adults or is it kind of wide, wide ranging or does, do you have like a niche within this niche? You know, I think it, it's not really a niche within a niche. It's more of a niche that I understand how to be present with somebody. Okay to help see where they need help, right? Yeah. Meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. I think that's the key to being a guy. I mean, being a mentor is meeting that person where they're needed most. What's the difference between a guide, a mentor, and a coach? Yeah, so I think is a guide is someone whose sole purpose is to protect you, um, to give you some education, mm-hmm. to help you get up a route. Whereas mm-hmm. a coach is to help you understand your abilities, how to show you what you can do to perfect your abilities to increase your chances as a performance and as an athlete and as a mentor is to help you guide, to help you find your way. Hmm. Do you think that, you know, maybe not all three, I would say maybe not the guide part. I definitely mm-hmm. agree with that. But do you feel like the coach and the mentor road, uh, roles overlap more so than anything else? Yeah, I do definitely. And it's, it's sometimes as coaches, um, it's quite interesting as far as like working with kids. There's like these kind of boundary things mm-hmm. or sometimes getting emotionally or empathetic with some of the your youth you work with can kind of cross over certain boundaries, um, which has been created by our society and that kind of stuff. Whereas being a mentor, you allow a space for somebody to be okay sharing where they're at emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's something that is, you have to learn about it. Right. It's something that's not really taught. You just kind of have to learn to be with your own self to be able to find that balance and have a balance where I can, okay, I can be here and listen to this person um, and be open and share some stuff. But I know I need to have a boundary with that. Was the coach is like, well, I can't do this because I may get in trouble. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, that's heavy because like, I mean, I, as you know, I mean, I, I coach yeah. kids, mm-hmm. coach about almost 200 kids yeah. on a regular basis between the ages of three to 19, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I know personally, I find myself teetering this line between I'm like being a coach and being someone who needs to impart wisdom or mentor, or just kind of like, as I like to say, like pull you aside and have some real talk yeah. and, like, and just like, Real talk in the perspective of like real talk, not telling you what to do, yeah. but real talk of like, I want to open up the scope of your decision-making and then I need, and then I want you to reevaluate your decisions that you're about to make. You are making, you have made. Yeah. And so I think it's a fine line of the dance because it is. 
is I don't think you can be a coach without being a mentor. And I don't think you can be a mentor without being a coach. And I do believe both of those roles do involve a little bit of guiding as a guidance, mm -hmm. but you know, in that world, not like your traditional commercial guide, for yeah. sense, but like guidance yeah. in that per se. And so that's why I was curious. Cause I think they all kind of like vaguely, vaguely overlap. Yeah. I think the coaching and the mentoring, they can kind of intertwine with each other. Right. And yeah, it's definitely. just like pulling apart. What, what am I now right now? What does this person mm. need for me? Mm. Does he need this coach? Or does he need someone just to hear him? Mm, yeah. I think okay. that's the key. And, and it's hard. Yeah, no, it, I mean, <laughs> well, I, it, I, you know, it, it is and it isn't. It's hard. Okay, I'll say this. I think that is very hard if yeah. you're a person who's not used to, uh, I think it's hard if, it, if you're a person who's not used to coming, approaching things from an empathetic standpoint, mm. or if you like, if empathy is not in your wheelhouse, yeah. you know, if, you know, if you're not someone who's consistently or ever had the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes, mm -hmm. then yeah, this is extremely hard for you. Yeah. But if you are someone who's grown up and I think this is also how you were raised too, mm -hmm. it's a big thing. Like, um, if you are someone who has had that, then it's easier to do. So I guess my question for you as someone who's spearheading mentorship mm -hmm. and spearheading leadership, how in the world do you get someone who really has an extreme lack of empathy, mm -hmm. you know, like that Mumford's and song song where it's like, I have no empathy for this or something. Yeah. But like, how do you get someone who has an extreme lack of empathy to somehow be able to have the ability to put themselves in that person's shoes and not always re-internalize it themselves. It's like, you know, people in a conversation who always redirect the conversation back to them and redirect yeah. the conversation to the experience. And I, I understand it's probably not intentional. Yeah. Yeah. But like, how does that person then like, like, yeah, how do, how, what is some advice that you would give someone who is at least self-aware enough to know yeah. that like, that's what they do? Yeah. I think, some advice would be more to kind of have be curious with them and ask them like, how does vulnerability feel for you? Mm. How does vulnerability look to you? And how have you been vulnerable with yourself? Okay. Right. And then, so when you start asking that question, just asking somebody about vulnerability kind of makes people cringe, right? Mm -hmm. Because when they hear the word vulnerability, especially as climbers, we're, we're used to being exposed to physical harm. Mm-hmm. But when we're exposed to emotional harm, that's kind of sometimes why we climb because we're able to escape some of those voices inside of us, mm -hmm. right? But when you kind of merge those two together, that's a true definition of vulnerability. It's being exposed to emotional and physical harm mm -hmm. by definition. Yeah. So once we learn and set with that and understand why am I lacking the emotional component? What is it that's missing from that? Keeping me from there, right? So being curious, like, okay, what do you feel like? Well, when I fall, I have, um, I'm, I'm failing. I'm like, okay, what is your relationship with failure? How does failure feel for you? How does it make you feel? How do you see failure? Mm -hmm. Right? So how, what is your relationship with failure? That right there is becoming empathetic with yourself. Yeah. Right. And I think that's something that's sometimes missing now in a youth, youth culture now, like they see failure as not success. Whereas I think failure is part of success. I think, you know, I, I would agree with you and I want to agree. Okay. For first, before, yeah. before I jump into this, cause I have a question that I've been holding yeah. on to my head, <laughs> but I want to agree and disagree with that comment yeah. because I, I, I like this. 
Um, and this is a question I have. Vulnerability, I agree 100%. Mm-hmm. I think it's there. How does someone, is vulnerability and transparency the same thing? And then mm-hmm. how does someone identify the difference between them being vulnerable and transparent? Because I only say this because I've come across people who some people are not as afraid of vulnerability, terrified of transparency. Some people are mm-hmm. terrified of transparency and not afraid of vulnerability. And then some people have them crossed and mixed. Yeah. Or is this a sliding scale? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I, I like that question. I really haven't been ever asked that. But yeah, transparency is just like, how am I being present with you right now? Mm-hmm. What am I hiding? Right. Yeah, but uh, but is that also vulnerability in its in its own way too? It's being a vulnerability would be more like here I am sitting here like hey I'm a little nervous doing this talk right now that can be vulnerability. Agree. I'm being transparent. Yeah. Like hey Mario, when I'm talking to you and you're looking at me, I just feel anxious. Uh, right. So now I'm like and but then you being like well how can I show up for you? Now mm. you're being transparent. You're making you're allowing me to be transparent with you. Like oh I think if you could just listen to me and hear what I'm saying and make me feel safe, I can be exposed and vulnerable to you. Uh, okay, I like that. Yeah, because yeah. I find this is like a hard thing, like especially, you know, and now tying this into youth coaching, um, like I find that like, especially with kids and even with adults, like, mm-hmm. like transparency and vulnerability are not the same thing, but they are so closely They're related. So close, yeah. Like it's like, like it, it's almost splitting hairs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like getting sandwich meat sliced really, really thin, really, really thin. Almost so you see, can see through it, but like it's, but they are two different things. And I think it's hard for, especially children Mm -hmm. to wrap their brain around that. And I think for even adults with not adults with no emotional availability and no emotional, no emotional availability and a lack of emotional vocabulary Mm -hmm. to express their own things and that lack of emotional vocabulary can also seem triggering when someone's then expressing something to them or expressing something about them from another person. Yeah. And so I think these are like two topics that like, I know I struggle with, with kids yeah. and all the time and jumping into the whole thing with kids, you know, I think kids are really good. And at least the kids I coach, I think they're very good at seeing mistakes as growth, mm-hmm. but what they're not good as not seeing a mistake, as it a reflection of their state of being of who they are mm. and their character or this, or like, well, if I wasn't that, I know, I know making mistakes makes me a better person, but yeah. I'm just, I shouldn't be making these things to begin with. And yeah. now you're like, well, that's uh, like, that's not how it works. Right. They're like, well, if I get better, I won't make the mistakes. And mm. I'm like, well, theoretically, yes. Yeah. And I'm like, but that doesn't mean you're not good now. Yeah. And I think this is where like, I find that like, I think they can understand it in a tactical standpoint, mm-hmm. in a tactical and physiological standpoint. Yeah. I understand it. And in my coaching, I, in my coaching and in life, I, I kind of break everything down to these three things. And there's a professional version, but I'm going to only talk about the personal version yeah. of it. You, you, your heart, your mind, and your gut mm-hmm. have all got to be in communication with each yeah. other. They don't all have to agree. And yeah. if they all agree, it's a very rare moment. But <laughs> usually it's like your heart and your mind are like, they're going to do this thing and your gut's kind of like, Ugh. yeah. and, it, and it, it, it's like, I'll, I'll give you 50% of me. And that's yeah. enough or 25% mm-hmm. of me. And I find that with kids, like their gut, and then they feel with, they know their gut, 
and their heart or they have their gut and their mind. Mm -hmm. But like one of like, there's always this massive disconnect with those Mm. two. And so because they can't, they don't have either the, they don't have the experiential vocabulary Mm -hmm. or the, or the emotional vocabulary and emotional maturity and understanding to have a conversation with all three of those parts. Mm -hmm. I find that like in my experience, they tend to rely on the physical side of it. Yeah. And then I think where you're speaking comes into play is like when you're trying to understand like, no, you're just terrified Mm -hmm. and this is not working because that, and they're like, Mm. well, it, and they can't wrap their brain around like, and I, as a climber, I'm sure you experienced this. Yeah. yeah. Either two things happen when you're scared. Mm -hmm. You get real strong Mm -hmm. on the wall. Yeah. Or you get real weak. (laughs) Exactly. That's pretty much it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Only those two happen. Yeah. Um, And I don't think they have the ability to grasp that. I mean, Mm. I'm not saying all of them do. I I don't want to generalize, but but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think it's interesting listening to you now talk. It's like what I kind of actually heard vulnerability and transparency within what you were talking about. And then I just want to throw this at you. It's like if you're working with the kids and if, they're looking down and trying to express where they are. I feel like that's transparency because uh, yeah. they're not truly to be present, but they can kind of share and be open. Yeah. But if they can look at you and like, yeah, I was scared because I did this or I was afraid to commit because I was afraid to fail. And I'm looking at you like I'm being vulnerable with you. Yeah, yeah. But if I'm looking down, I can still say those same things. It doesn't have the same meaning. Truth, truth. Yeah, because right? kids, they can't hide their body language. They can't hide their body language. No, yeah. not in any way, so, shape or yeah, form. I think that's... Some adults can, they've learned as a coping <laughs> mechanism, but <laughs> that's another topic, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I, and that's kind of what I was hearing when you were telling me, like, oh, I think that's kind of what I think that fine line is. Yeah. It's complicated. It is a complicated. It, like, it's like, uh, it's like my, one of my favorite foods of all time. It's mole. Oh man. Yeah. I love some mole. <laughs> mole. Oh my God. Good mole is hard to find. Oh, it is. Especially yeah. Colorado. <laughs> oh, oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah. Southern Colorado Steamboat Springs. I've had good mole yeah. down there. Like, you know, but that's so close to New Mexico. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> the, honestly, you know, it's funny. The best mole I ever had was in Florida, in Miami. Oh, okay. And I was like blown away. <laughs> Um, I was surprised, but we can talk about food. That's a whole nother (laughs) podcast. I can just go down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Um, But no, this is interesting. I'm really enjoying this talk because like, um, you know, I don't get to talk to someone about the complexities. Mm -hmm. Most people want to talk about the complexity of coaching children, Mm -hmm. but I don't think people talk about the complexity of communicating with children. No. And I also think the complexities of communicating with children are I don't know if you'll agree or disagree with the statement, but they are far easier than dealing with the complexities of communicating with adults. Oh yeah, totally. Far easier. Yeah. Cause once again, children can't really hide it. They can't hide it. And you can read their body language and like, okay, this, but it helps you adapt. Like, okay, this mm-hmm. is the b- difference between being a coach and a mentor is how do you adapt to so, being empathetic yeah. to that? So then what are the first steps? Like, let's just say, like, let's keep it simple. Three. Mm-hmm. Um, if there are more than throw them in there, but yeah. like, what are the first steps to someone wanting to become a mentor in their community? Cause I think, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a big choice to make mm-hmm. because you know, you, once again, you need to be very self-aware of where you are and your status in your community. Yeah. And I find that, you know, rock climbing is a very ego based sport. Yeah. It's very self, I mean, yeah. it's a selfish sport. I mean, like totally. at the end of the day. so like how, how can one identify 
how can one identify that they're not just being selfish and they're trying to put themselves in a role that they don't really have mm. and, or they are not in that position of authority and like, but they want it Yeah. or and how can someone identify that comparison to like, no, I am servicing a need and there is a genuine lack of this need. Like, mm-hmm. you know, how do you become that selfless because yeah. when in a sport that is so selfish? Right. I think, um, I mean, to answer your question is like, one is write it down. Like, okay, what does mentorship look like to me? Mm-hmm. Right. For me, to me. And what value is it going to bring them? And what value is it going to bring me? Mm-hmm. And which one outweighs each other, right? What are the pros and cons? Mm, okay. Right? So is it ego driven? Right? So if I'm doing this mentor, am I doing it because I want my name to be known? Or am I doing this because I know I'm going to make a difference? Mm, right? Okay. That's heavy. Yeah. It's heavy, right? It is. And if your name's not attached to it, are you okay with that? What is the outcome? Because then the, you're taking away the ego. Yeah. I, I, bye I, bye. I, I don't know if a lot of people are. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. It's, you know, if I, and I can, for me, um, if I wasn't doing this and no one knew my name, I'm still okay with it because I know I made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I can see what these kids are doing that are now coaching and becoming guides and doing some amazing things outside of climbing. Right. So that outweighs anything. that I've, my name has been attached to. And I think that's the key thing, like you said, because climbing is an ego sport, (laughs) right? It's kind of a selfish sport. But when you take away you out of it, does it still have value to you? I think that's hard. Yeah. I think it's a hard question for people to ask themselves because, you mean, you know, think about like the sheer amount of Mm self-awareness And like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm sure there's a better word for this, but self-wokeness is what I'm going to call it yeah, at this moment. Like yeah, I know. Like, but think about the amount of like, just like kind of soul searching someone genuinely has to be to get there. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and I want to be very clear too, when I say this, like as climbers, we inherently have the skills to do this mm-hmm. because, you know, it, prime example, prime example. Yeah. Anyone who works up the gumption to get on League of Doom, <laughs> that alone answered my question. Yeah. Right? <laughs> You're laughing alone. You have to kind of really be real with yourself because the first 35, 40 feet is not hard rock climbing. It's yeah. really easy. It, I mean, yeah. I've climbed League of Doom probably like, I don't know, 12, 13 times. Yeah. I've come in a dozen times. But I have had holds break on me almost a lot on the first bottom of that half of yeah. that route, you know? And then when you get your first piece of gear placed, you're like, great. And that piece of gear is not great. No. You're like, you feel great, but like technically it's dog shit. And yeah. I know people who have fallen and that gear is held. And I also know people who have fallen and that gear is not held. Like one year there was so much water down. A buddy of mine left, uh, like he, I, I think if it wasn't for him falling on his buddy mm-hmm. and they had laid a crash pad down and it got sopping wet. So it didn't move and he fell and he landed on his friend and they landed on the crash pad. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you guys are so lucky to be alive. And he was like, well, I fell and I grabbed onto a hole and I slid down and I like slowed myself down. So I didn't hit him with full force. And I was like, and I looked at him I was like, you realize in this entire statement, nothing you said was good. <laughs> but getting back to the point is like just the sheer self, like, awareness you need to mm-hmm. have to jump on League of Doom because it really I mean there really isn't any good protection mm-hmm. until you get to like the little triffle roof thing that yeah. you got to do and that part because I'm sh- like I'm I'm too short most of all my 
climbing partners are so taller than me. Yeah. They can like just blah, blah. That part forever gave me, um, <laughs> like I had nightmares about that yeah. part. But yeah, but like prime example, like I think we have the inherent tools mm -hmm. in our repertoire as climbers because we build up all this gumption and all this wherewithal and all this know-how just to get on an actual route. But do you think as a whole climbers have the ability to redirect that energy, that level of self-awareness, that level of understanding of like, I want to do something that's outside of my scope and my ability. Do you think that as a whole, we have the, most people can redirect that. I think so, but I don't know. So. Yeah. I think the way society is now today, I would say no. Um, mm. Just by, it's interesting this morning, the talk I gave, the, the gap, the mentorship gap in the climbing gym ministry. Someone asked that kind of question, like, how do we get my members to want to be mentors? All they want to do is come in and leave. And I said, well, that's because we've become detached from the mentorship, mm -hmm. right? Because now our society is behind the screen. We get a lot of our information behind the screen. We get a lot of information from Mountain Project. We get a lot of that. We're not attached to... I use this analogy is like when I started climbing the bouldering, when you were bouldering in the gym back then, it was pea gravel mm -hmm. and tire rubber and Tiva rubber. Right. Mm -hmm. So the spot was pretty important. That was the connection. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, so we yeah. still spotted each other. We still supported each other. Mm -hmm. Right. And then as the pad got taller, we stayed back further. So Thanks. now we're separating from that. And then as they got bigger and the walls got uh, taller, we really stepped away. Yeah, yeah. So now it's kind of lost that detachment. So now there's no initial communication with each other. And I, I think in a way that it's still there, but people have become detached from it. So it's le learning how to rediscover it yeah. and, and asking them like, what does climbing mean for you? Yeah, no, I would agree. It's funny you say that. Cause like when I first started climbing back in Dallas rocks days, yeah. <laughs> You remember, I don't know if you remember, they had like those only those four Asana drag pads. Yeah. yeah. And I remember some of my closest climbing partners and closest friends, I was like, hey, I'm going to do this route on Big Techs. Like, will you spot me? <laughs> and they're just like, and they're like, oh, you're doing that one? And I'm like, I remember like if it was not for Aaron and Jolene Giles, I would have a broken shoulder and a yeah. broken arm. But it was just because like that was the nature of the beast. It was just as scary climbing outdoors yeah. as it was indoors. Yeah. And it's funny. I almost feel like the secret is just everybody needs to go outdoor climbing now. So you spot yeah. and boulder and right. you know, belay yourselves. But I also think it's like, I think you're right. And I also think, and this is just, you know, and I'm also going to say what I'm about to say is I am so guilty of, I am 100% guilty of this. So this glass house is throwing stones <laughs> and I expect stones to be thrown back at me. But I also think um, people just not wanting to communicate, always wearing headphones, always mm -hmm. just like, being so isolated in the yeah. gym, it's a thing. And I wear them all the time and yeah. I do it while I'm exercising. I'm doing running and it's also to working in a gym. Mm -hmm. Like I either climb at six in the morning when the gym mm -hmm. opens. Cause it's the only time I get, cause other than that I'm coaching or yeah, working yeah. Mm -hmm. or I go in late in the afternoon and I'm like, ah, like I'm trying to get this workout in. So I'm not in bed past 11 o'clock, yeah. you know? And it's like, it's hard. Yeah. And so I think, you know, kind of going back to this whole thing of like, as your talk is like, you know, what is mentorship or mm -hmm. how to do it? And I think mentorship basically is a choice. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. It is a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I just want to add some stuff that I um, was wanting to share. I've been kind of setting this is like when you mentioned the route League of Doom, the reason I was laughing is because 
when you're talking about like that person being the coach or the mentor, I was soloing their out. Oh. And my, my climbing party who taught me how to climb, uh, Brian Clark, mm-hmm. um, he was next to me, like on another route watching me. And when I, after I finished soloing it, he's, he kind of like pulled me aside, like Marcus, what's going on? Right. He kind of had like a coming to Jesus talk with me. Cause this is kind of, I was in this weird emotional state of mind back then. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's when I put up this route called rage and all these, I was just like pushing the limits. And it's uh-huh. like, I wasn't really like on a death mission, but I was just trying to kind of lose myself in the emotions. Mm. Right. So it's like when, when you kind of see like he became the mentor and not so much my coach kind of way, he was more the mentor then. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. So it was interesting. That's why I was laughing like, Oh my God, I haven't heard that route in so long. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah. And then when you talked about the story, like, yeah, it's a pretty heads up route. <laughs> oh yeah. Right off the ground. <laughs> yeah. Right off the ground. Yeah, so. Especially depending on the water level. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, so it's quite interesting when we, we were talking about the mentorship and when to step in as a coach and when to step in as a mentor. Yeah. 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 I think my only moment that I've ever had like that, where someone pulled me aside is I think it's called Jupiter mm. on it's either. I think it's called Jupiter. It's on uh, Quartz Mountain mm-hmm. to the right of Amazon Woman. I oh, think. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Jupiter, it's like 11C, but the first like 90 feet <laughs> is like run out. Yeah. And I just remember my buddy, like I am normally very calculated. I read my route and I remember being at a point and I think I just got out of a relationship or something like that. Right. But I just like stormed up it. And yeah. then the obvious place where you could place gear, I didn't place it. I just kept on going. And my buddy pulled me aside and Will was like, bro. Yeah. You just climbed like 145 feet with no gear whatsoever. And I watched you do some crooksy ass 11C moves and you almost fell, but you caught yourself. And I was like, he's, right? like, he's like, bro, yeah, you That's need to rein it like, back. Yeah, you it, had to rein back. And like, he's like, oh, you need I to rein it back. Yeah, you're, you're not, we're, we wanted to be disattached. Yeah, yeah, right yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I remember. Crazy. Actually, I do remember. Yeah, I had right. just gotten out of a relationship with, mm-hmm. uh, with this girl who was a doctor at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's that emotional component of climbing we try to hide from sometimes. Yeah. So. Oh, man. Rock climbing is great and dangerous. Kids, <laughs> yeah. don't do it. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, I know the keynote speak is getting ready to happen yeah. in a minute here, no, but I... I, I want to jump off here, but I definitely, I would love to wrap around. I have, I'm actually, I'm working on a new podcast mm-hmm. and I haven't mentioned anything about it. So yeah. this is the first time I'm mentioning it and I know everybody listening, I'm not going to tell you any details about it, but I will tell you about it. But I think it would be really great because I have a segment on it mm-hmm. I'm working, but it is all about, um, kind of the topics that we've been talking about. Yeah, no, about. I, this is great. I love talking about this. Yeah. Um, but if people want to find you, support you, mm-hmm. or learn more from you, how can they find you online? Yeah, you can find me online at uh, MG Climber One on Instagram, mm-hmm. or just Marcus Garcia Athlete on Facebook, or mm-hmm. just Marcus Garcia. Those are kind of the best ways and to get a hold of me. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And then do you want to give anybody a shout out? Say hello to anybody. Yeah, this is a big shout out to um, you know my my Kevin Lindau and uh, Liam Foster and just people who I've been mentors who are now being mentors to me. And okay. It's been pretty amazing to have this cohesive relationship over the last 10 years. Okay. With them. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Well, thank yeah. you for your time. You're welcome. And I'll <laughs> see you later. Sounds good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Friends and enemies, lovers and haters, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Marcus. It was great to talk to a fellow coach, guide, 
and someone who takes extreme ownership over the people that they mentor and they help step into this climbing community, climbing ethos, climbing world, because it's a big deal. We're out there doing big and bold things. Sometimes they're dangerous, sometimes they're not so dangerous. Climbing is always inherently dangerous, that's a fact. But I am super excited and proud to have this conversation with Marcus and to know that he is helping you just as much as I am make sure that that send and that suffer are of equal and great value. Because remember, if you're not suffering, are you even sending at all?